Number nine. Number nine. Fuck was that? Fuck was that? Number nine. Coffee. You are back. Welcome to episode nine of Agile Coffee. We're enjoying our summer. I hope you're enjoying your summer as well. Today we are in an undisclosed location, but it is no longer in a coffee shop. I'd like to welcome back Brett Palmer. Hi, good morning, Victor. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, but you look a little down. I'm well. I'm not down. I'm actually a little bit fatigued from my workout this morning. I had it's, it's Saturday, and of course, uh, everybody wants to sleep in normally. But yes. I was at the gym. <laughs> I was at the gym getting my ass kicked this morning <laughs> at six thirty. So Brett can be reached on Twitter at Brett underscore Palmer. We also have John Jorgensen. It's a pleasure again. John's Twitter handle is Water Scrumbon. And welcome back, Dr. Dave Cornelius. Always fun to be with you guys. And Dave can be reached on Twitter at Dr. Cornelius Info. Yeah, likewise, Dave. It's good to have you back, and it's good to have all of us back together again. So once again, we are playing by the rules of Lean Coffee for our podcast, where we will uh, look at the topics that we've got spread out in front of us, which we'll read here in a second. And then we will vote, dot voting. Each of us will have three or four votes rank them in order of how interesting they sound, and then we'll take the first one and talk on it for five minutes and give ourselves some Roman voting, a thumbs up to continue on the discussion, thumbs down to move along, or a thumbs, you know, sideways, meaning I can go with whatever the group decides. So with that, let's go ahead and start reading through some of the topics that we have. The first card here says Wisdom of Crowds. Yeah, that was my card, and just wanted to kind of uh, share ideas about it. Mm-hmm. Respect people. Uh, yeah, mine's talking about one of the lean principles. Next is first week on the job. That's my card. I started a new job. Yay! <laughs> Training conquest is next. Yes. Uh, so this is uh, just a, a quick um, strategization of how to train people in agile and scrum. Deliver fast. Another lean principle. Flex training. Just something I found the other day related to Scrum or Agile training want to explore. The last card we have here is coaching retreats and boot camps. Um, that's my card as well. Uh, just made a couple discoveries uh, yesterday about folks that are training Agile coaches. All right. So here we go. We're going to go ahead, take a moment to prioritize, and we'll start our first topic. So let's go ahead and kick things off with our first topic, Wisdom of Crowds. Thanks. That's my card. And um, this last week, I I read the book. Bought it a while ago. Um, it's by a guy named I'm going to slaughter his name. I'm sorry, James. Uh, Wisdom of Crowds by James Sirowicki. That's right. And this is a great book that I don't think was necessarily made by the traditional agile community. James just um, is a great researcher and a, a very accomplished writer who wrote about this uncanny phenomenon. I don't know that there's a scientific explanation for why, but wisdom, when we're talking about certain kinds of interactions, cer- crowds under certain kinds of circumstances are collectively more intelligent 
than its most intelligent member. And that's just extremely counterintuitive to me because whenever you think of like averages or some sort of combined sum per capita, you find out that, you know, everybody gets a little less. But you take one person that has limited information that happens to be slightly different from another person that maybe has a lot more information and there's ways of putting it together to solve three different kinds of problems. There's cognition problems, there's coordination problems, and then there's cooperation problems. And these problems can be solved extremely, not just a little bit, extremely more effectively through this you know, aggregate outcome, aggregate wisdom, I guess you could say, aggregate intelligence of a crowd. So one example that is in the book mm-hmm. is of, um, uh, I think it was like a, a, a county fair type mm-hmm. of an atmosphere about 100 years ago in the early 1900s, yep. and there was a, um, a steer that yes. was um, uh, on display, and, mm-hmm. and they said that they would take votes uh, or, or like contest entries. I don't know if you had to pay mm-hmm. a token amount, like a dollar or something, to have yes. an entry, but then you would write your guess legibly onto a, onto a card or a piece of paper and try to see if you could guess the weight of this steer once it was um, cleaned and dressed, I guess you would call it, you know, ready for uh, being sent to the butcher, right? How much um, it would weigh. And do you want to explain the outcome? Well, sure. You know, they, they all guessed, and there was a closest guess, but this, this gentleman who, and I use the term loosely, uh, this gentleman who was there making observations more about the crowd than about the steer, um, he somehow got access to the information and he, he aggregated it. He took everybody's guesses and then he divided it. So he had a mathematical average. What he found was something very different than what he was expecting, which was that the average guess was within one pound of the actual weight. Uh, which is a lot more accurate than the most, the, the closest guess. So he began thinking very differently than he had. Um, and I guess, you know, I don't want to steal any thunder from the, the author. Please go out and read the book. When I was presenting this topic um, to a, a, a group, I had to try to summarize this very, very succinctly, which is a challenge um, because there's so much that can be inferred from this. But the, the parts that I didn't get to cover were the risks of wisdom of crowds. In other words, when the wisdom goes sour uh, through groupthink or the, the um, transaction costs, we'll call them, are very high. Or when you know, there's just other obstacles to aggregation of, of people's insights that it can be hard to get this wisdom in. You know, uh, you know, James Sirwicky provides examples of the tragedy of when that happens. For example, um, groups can make horrible decisions, and it can cost lives. And that was the case with the Columbia. Um, and space shuttle. Yeah. yeah, space shuttle Columbia. So, so influence also could be a factor yes, to make exactly. sure that those numbers are closer than they actually are. Right. Because right? it depends on the guy who's leading. Right. Yeah. They could pretty much lead people down to, hey, I am. It's it's kind of like when you're mm-hmm. you're um, actually doing estimating, mm-hmm. right? Anchoring and you got everyone is going three, and, and that, mm-hmm. you can't do one. Everyone is doing three, right? Yep. It's influencing 
uh, people within the crowd itself to sure, that, respond that, in, in, a, in a different way. That was then my next question. Yeah. What are these applications for us? What does yes. the wisdom of the crowd do so, for us? So, you know, I, I saw I saw several um, applications as I was thinking about, you know, what to talk to this group. This group was a, a group of scrum practitioners. And I, I found about eight or nine, but mostly like, you know, Dave was saying, um, you know, Folks estimating story sizes, maybe doing root cause analysis, retrospective of a sprint, things like that. And I guess one of the things that I didn't bring up was Agile Coffee. Agile Coffee can be a way of safeguarding um, a lot of these problems like uh, skyrocketing transaction costs or anchoring or domination or polarization is another risk. And we don't really even know a lot about why groups polarize. But the good news is they can depolarize. Um, but, you know, talking, excessive talking actually starts to have an effect of building this persona of having authoritative information. Yeah, and so the, the time box, like, you know, five minutes, voting up, voting down, this keeps it so democratic that it actually, I think, locks in some of the wisdom of crowds. And, and sometimes even to manage that more, when you look at things like I talked about, um, the KJ method, where there's mm-hmm. silent thought where people are, are innovating in, in their own space yep. and then it's visually displayed and then they come together to really have a discussion and go back and sit and sell it up. That helps to reduce the amount of influence. Yep. Right? And so there are other ways to control um, you know, those type of negative outcome as well. One last thought on this topic that I think you could say has been troubling me a little bit internally is so having been formally trained several times in facilitation, the typical Sam Kaner model is that you take this group through ideation and they, their ideas, they begin to diverge. And then you go through this thing called the grown zone where people are like, we're never going to agree on anything. And then you start helping them converse through various exercises and reach some sort of an agreement. And generally they call it a consensus in facilitation. And one idea that James bring out, brings out that I really like is it's not the collaboration and consensus that we want for wisdom of crowds. We want actual competition and like independent um, selling of ideas, trading of ideas, I guess you could say. And we want aggregation. Aggregation is different than consensus. There, the funneling is not as tight at the end. And so it's a very sophisticated idea to, to tell somebody the outcome of this exercise or meeting is not that we all like, you know, hold hands and sing kumbaya, we all agree, we're all one. It's We've put our ideas on the table and we've argue, argued for them or, you know, um, advocated for them as positively and actively as we possibly could. We didn't necessarily persuade everyone 100%, but the aggregate came out and we believe in taking advantage of the aggregates. And that's, that's where I see it. So it's, it's different than traditional uh, facilitation. Excellent. Then moving on to our second topic today is Dr. Dave, respect people. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. I started reading uh, Tom and Mary Poppinuk, uh book again about uh, lean software development. And this was one of the chapters, uh, I think it's chapter six. And, and really just walking through the process of, you, know, you have a crowd of people developing software or building a product. And how do we respect their, their ideas and their inputs? And to, to ensure that um, that they're heard, that they're understood, and they're encouraged to continue 
build software because you know as you get into larger organizations of of uh, where you have teams of maybe say sixty people divided into six smaller teams um, at times you may have one source who may just dominate the whole conversation and it's it's really building that respect and and, and looking at um, the Toyota way and how they did that through Kaizen. And, and using different principles like that to, to help us adapt and allow everyone to be um, a valued participant in the process. And I, I see that as we go through this transformation of, of Lean and Agile, that the project manager is crowded out. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's a great disrespect to that role that as I go into different you know, Agile settings, you hear it, you hear the tone, the body language. And I, I say that we need to ratchet that back because every individual has a value to contribute, whether we understand it or not, or we, we want to accept that, but we have to find a way to make sure that we bring respect for the people. So, back one in. I, yeah, so one of the comments I'd like to make about that is especially with offshore uh, components of development teams, um, it's even more so challenging because they're not there you know, in real time to be able to maybe in, have have real-time input. Out of sight, so, out of mind is yeah. a definite risk. Right. It's kind of more like the offshore teams are treated as a body shop, like, here, mm-hmm. do the, crank out the work, let us, let us figure out what you need to do, and let us know in the morning how it went. I, yeah, I think um, there's two... Two aspects. One is the scale. The larger the organization or the the team of teams, and then the more out of sight, maybe the more distributed they are, the more dehumanization risk actually exists there. It's like this amorphous amoeba out there that just gives us software every month or every couple of weeks. That's that that can't be part of the respect for people. And then when you're when you're one person in a huge crowd, like I don't know, maybe it's just me, but. That in and of itself, that setting feels dehumanizing, and it takes a lot of trust to say, like, no, like, you know, I'm I'm a part of a team, and this team is a team that advocates for my interests and the customer's interests, you know, and that requires trust, of course. So it's a tricky balance and a, and a difficult problem to solve, I would say. Well, it's, it's more around culture, right? Yeah. Absolutely. It comes down into building that culture where respect to people is one of those anchors or markers that you build into to your, your, your cultural environment. And um, it, it, in, in terms of even just having offshore teams, it's building the culture that you are a valued unit and you provide a value back to the organization. It's that type of messaging that I find that's really missing you know, as we go through well, agile or, or, well, or traditional y- y- model. Yeah, and um, that would that also comes more in terms of not just at the team level, but this goes into more of a, a corporate philosophy mm-hmm. and a IT leadership philosophy of 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 what that value is. <clears throat> you know, I yeah. think, and I'm going to go way out on a limb right. here. I, I think that in the technology arena, that when we talk about things as as esoteric as respect for people in air quotes or um, culture really determining um, outcomes, it can easily be poo-pooed. I would say more easily poo-pooed than perhaps non-engineering, scientific, um, you know, communities might might uh, cause. And and 
even so, you know, when you talk about the toughest problems to solve at scale, almost everybody will immediately say, oh, yeah, culture. Culture is the thing that eats strategy for breakfast, you know, and farts it out by lunch. But culture, okay, just because you acknowledge that it's something difficult, on the one hand, you know, at the highest management level, and then at the, at the, the working every day, you know, in the trenches level, say, oh, well, you know, culture is lovey-feely, you know, um, love and happiness, esoteric, probably just snake oil doesn't exist. There's there's some discontinuity there. And I, I, I think that that's what's hard to address. Yeah. There was one thing I was reading uh, Clayton uh, Christensen's book, uh, How Would You Measure Your Life? Oh. Very interesting book. And, and it's, it's really using um, theory, real actual business theory, to mm-hmm. apply to your life. And one of the things that he talks about with culture is yes, so there's there's three pieces. There's what do you like, mm-hmm. what you commit to, and mm-hmm. how do you measure it? Metrics. Mm-hmm. So I mean, so culturally, I mean, you would have to you know add that mm-hmm. in a, a, as 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 a driving factor to, to allow you to get there. Mm-hmm. All right, so we've reached the end of that topic. I'd like to remind everyone to communicate with us on Twitter using the hashtag Ask Agile Coffee. Or the hashtag Tell Agile Coffee. Keep this conversation going. This is a the respect for people topic is a great example of a topic that I think we could talk about uh, for hours on end and, and still have more more to say. All right. So the next topic card up is my own. It's first week on the job, and so to start off, I'd like to just say that you don't have these opportunities very often to right. have your first week on the job. Yeah. Unless you're like a serial job hopper, but <laughs> but I'm not. So I had my first week on the job at a um, at a software shop, and I'm the scrum master. I was introduced to my team of about seven developers, developers, QA, front end people all together. Um, there's a product owner who doesn't sit in the corral with the rest of us. Uh, I found that to be one of the red flags, and. Um, Altogether, in the engineering department, there's about 25 or 30 engineers, IT people, QA testers, project uh, own, product owners, and, and scrum masters. I'd say about 30 plus or minus. So um, I had, I have a list of observations, which I'm not really going to go into here, but I think the fact that I, the way that I acquired these observations is worth noting. So... It's my first week on the job, and as the new Scrum Master, people are, like, looking up to me, who's this outsider coming into our team? Right. And and I, my personality, I'm not one to kind of jump in and start talking anyway. Right. But I tended to even, to make that known to everyone that this week I'm not jumping into conversations. I'm not giving my two cents unless they ask me. I'm really here for listening and observing for the first week so that I can take the weekend and assimilate and kind of prepare what it is that I want to say and, and people don't think of me as oh he's just the guy that's coming in to muck everything up. Yeah. So I just wanted to introduce that and now, see if that's a, as a generic template how that fits. Now when you are um, leading your first few scrums, your first few daily stand-ups, are you calling on each person individually to give their status or is does the team hand that off to the next person and you just Totally remain silent. So during... No, I'm not totally silent. Right. Um, during the stand-up, the mm-hmm. first day I let the tech lead do the stand-up so I could observe how they do that. Got but it. I, I communicated with him that um, that I'm 
ready to take it over, and I did mm-hmm. take it over day two. And I was approached by members of the team that said they, they liked the way I ran the stand-up, which was great. And I, I did kind of go through my typical, um, how I was used to doing scrums, modified it a bit to how I saw they ran scrums, like we use now to the rally tool, and they look at the tool on a big screen projector as opposed to in the past we would just kind of stand up um, and, and just talk out loud without that tool going on. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I'm involved. I'm just not... Not changing things. I'm not. I'm not going to be the guy that comes in and says, "Okay, it's my second day or my third day on the job. This is how we do stuff." Um, another example is we had a backlog grooming where I stood up in the beginning of the backlog grooming and and just for a, less than a minute I said that you know the backlog grooming is the product owner's responsibility. So Joe is going to uh, run it. Names changed to protect the innocent here. Mm-hmm. Um, and. And here's the purpose of the backlog grooming, and, and that's it. I, I didn't really go into too much detail on how stories should be made, or we need, you know, two or three sprints worth of stuff in advance. But I did keep these notes during the backlog grooming, so that at our, at our first retro, I could begin to share this, these observations. I want to take you up a, a one step higher, and and I, I look at you as a leader, right? And so, there's this book that I need still need to read. It's on my list of to read by Michael D. Watkins. It's called The First 90 Days. Yes, I have that book. You have that book. Yes, so it it talks about transitions and and their critical times. And um, it it talks about building new career competence and and assessing transition risk. And so it's it's walking through the process of making sure that you're prepared for this new role. you need to, obviously you need to accelerate your learning because there's domain knowledge that mm-hmm. you obviously don't have people knowledge, culture knowledge, all of those different things. Um, and it's, it's how do you match you know your strategy or the corporate strategy to your situation? So there's a, several points that it walks through. So um, putting that out there on you to see exactly as a leader, you know how will you get through your first ninety days? And that's a very important. You know it's. Of, it's great that you mentioned that, Dave, because I, I'd read the book in the past when I did a similar transition, and so I've probably internalized a lot of those lessons, but I didn't think of that book, so I'll have to pull it back off the shelf and just kind of browse through it, yeah. because I'm only five days into my first 90, but there are some key milestones yeah. that he mentions in that book and some ways to prepare for them. So, yeah. Also, uh, speaking of the topic of leadership and... Um, I guess just being somewhat uh, soft-spoken, you know, uh, Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching, um, you know, he says, you know, the, you know, the leader is successful, I guess, when the people say, hey, we did it ourselves. And so maybe being silent and observing and subtly nudging is better. Right, I see that too. Um, especially in the role of Scrum Master or Agile Coach, you don't want to be visible. You want mm-hmm. to kind of appear to... Be that that silent hand, mm-hmm. not directing, not Adam Smith's mm-hmm. silent hand or invisible, invisible hand. hand but, yeah. Um, but yeah, perfect. All right, so that's my first week on the job, and I'm looking forward to week number two. Meanwhile, we're looking forward to topic number four. Next up, we have training conquest. John. Yeah. So this is, I guess, you could say the polar opposite of what we were just talking about, which is um, the the purpose of of training, in, at least in an Agile or, or Scrum setting, is to open people's minds up to ideas that maybe don't uh, normally prevail in the working world and to make our working lives better. And so one thing that um, 
I'm looking at right now is we've got a, a disparate workforce, let's say. Some folks who have been formally trained in Agile or Scrum, some folks who have not. Some folks who are very experienced in Agile and Scrum and some who are not. And how do we meet the needs of all of these disparate individuals at the same time while not being overbearing in terms of like, you know, the, the load of, of getting trained and balancing that with the load of day-to-day work? So I don't have my plan of how to, you know, I call it a conquest because to me it's a very daunting task, actually. I don't have a plan in mind yet, but I'm, I'm open if anybody has experiences with how to, like, weave it in. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I can say that I share your sympathy because mm-hmm. I've noticed the same observation at the company that I work with. Mm-hmm. We've got some people that are really into Scrum that mm-hmm. want to do it, like myself. Um, and then we've got other people that maybe had a two-day Scrum Master training class mm-hmm. maybe two, three years ago. But they are working in certain types of projects where they're not doing Scrum. So they're not putting that uh, knowledge to daily use. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where if you don't use it, you lose it. it. Um, But there's also a mindset, a a mind frame that you have to get into when you you are that Scrum Master, that agile spirit must Mm -hmm. take hold. but to, to get back to your particular question about how to weave it in and bring everybody up, mm-hmm. I think really what you have uh, what, what you're what we need are more people that are agile evangelists yes. that are that are points of light within the organization yeah. that are going to <clears throat> help motivate people to you know to want to get out uh to seek out that training you know but one thing i'd like yeah. to, to, to add is is that there has to be you have to be intentional about this yes right and, and so it has to be part of your strategy yeah. which means it has to end up in your backlog at some point in mm-hmm. time of work to be done yeah but but more more important is that is building a community within, you know, the evangelist, but, but building a community where you have open space activities, right? Mm-hmm. Inviting people from different organizations mm-hmm. in to have these type of discussions. We go to all of these different conferences, yeah. but yeah, we never bring her back to work, right? right. Yeah, 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 just imagine if you guys said, hey, we're having an open space next week and everyone is invited, or mm-hmm. we're having an, uh, a lean coffee type model in the place where... Mm-hmm. Now you're actually practicing. You're drawing people in. People are beginning to understand the benefits and contributing. And in that way, that stuff goes in your backlog. And it's something mm-hmm. that you could really measure toward cultural change. Yeah, I, I like these ideas, and I, I'm actually going to use them. Um, I, I want, you know, I think one of the, the best ways to draw out, like, who, who are my undiscovered champions of Agile and Scrum? I think the best way to find them is to, it's almost like fishing. You, you know, maybe have an activity or a gathering that's short, you know, maybe like say over lunch hour. Yeah, the, lunch the, hour. And like, it's an open invite to all, yeah. compulsory to none. Yep. And the folks who have the interest and some of the enthusiasm, they just emerge. And, and that's what I'm hoping is that, you know, through continuous, like, I guess you could say waves or sessions of that, maybe folks. Yeah, e- even on a monthly basis where you have mm-hmm. a regular cadence mm-hmm. uh, where people could come in. On, and lunch and lunch are awesome, right? Yeah. You come in for 45 minutes, um, 
you know, perhaps you may get someone to fund pizza. Mm-hmm. Maybe you may fund pizza, or maybe collectively you may take a, a donation to fund pizza. Fortunately, I, I do have a budget, actually. Yeah, so, yeah. so you could leverage those things to add value, not only to the development organization, but, mm-hmm. you know, marketing, training, yeah, that's um, finance. I mean, you go through the organization. Matter of fact, if you have an organizational development group mm-hmm. in, in HR, mm-hmm. great partnership, yeah. great partnership to help. You know, propel this forward. So I don't know if my new organization has that organizational development group, but I suspect that there's a strong um, want or desire, desire to have something yeah. like that. Uh, I have been reading on our internal wiki that in the past um, they've tried a lot of things. For example, and it's not just limited to Agile. Mm-hmm. It's um, kind of also to the, the different technologies that the developers use and and other ways to apply those technologies. So there's a, a Java Java users group mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> within the organization. They have um, their user group guild meetings. Yep. Um, so anyone from any team who is interested in using Java or cleaning up the processes of to which we practice Java is invited once a month over pizza mm-hmm. um, to get together and, and discuss and kind of continue on developing the, the methods. Also within the organization, I've noticed that they had a coding uh, dojos, mm-hmm. um, which I'm not sure if they still do that, but then they've also had the tech talks. Um, they've got a library of, of books, a virtual library, where they would get together and read the books and then discuss the books, so kind of a book of the month club. And these are things, these are all kind of ideas that um, go toward training and building a community of, of learners, of people who are interested in learning, that I think go a long way within the organization to build up that organization's um, not only knowledge, but also their culture. Yeah. Sounds good to me. I'm going to try it out. Yep. All right. So that brings us to the end of the training conquest topic. I'm going to pause because I know that Brett has a hard stop here very soon. Mm. So I'm going to ask Brett, of the remaining topics, is there one that you would like to choose? I would like to choose coaching retreats boot camps. Okay. You, you heard it, folks. So, John, this is your topic. Why don't you start us off? Yeah, so this is, I would say, specific, started specific to Southern California. There had been rumors that, you know, perhaps we might have Lisa Atkins come down in the fall and give her a uh, coaching boot camp. And then, you know, kind of projecting my mind out to, towards that season, um, happened to just get this announcement from the Agile Coaching LinkedIn users group that somebody was starting a topic uh, or more comments have been, been made towards, hey, what's the best Agile Coaching boot camp or retreat uh, that you've been to? And of course, Lisa Adkins' uh, wonderful program came up many times, but somebody also mentioned, well, gosh, you know, there's this annual event up in, I guess it's in Indianapolis or something. Um, it's the Agile Coaching Retreat. And now, is that the same one that's in August in Detroit this year? In August? I don't think it's Detroit, but uh, yeah, check it out. Okay. I think this one's in Indianapolis, um, and it's the, what surprised me was the price. So it's a nonprofit, you know, organization mm-hmm. that's doing this, and it's like one hundred twenty-five dollars for two days. Yeah, I know, shockingly, shockingly affordable. My jaw just dropped. <laughs> yeah. yeah, two days for one hundred twenty-five bucks. Um, and then, and, and it's it's a coaching retreat essentially. It's um, an open space format, and you know if you can get those two days off and get out there, uh, whoever's listening, please do it. And um, 
And then there was another thing that I noticed, which was somebody had mentioned um, Esther Derby does a, a coaching curriculum, co- agile coaching boot camp, so to speak. Um, and I'm, the name of uh, one of her collaborative partners escapes me, but um, she, it seems that she gets you know, a, a small team of, of instructors, trainers, or, or coaches of coaches together, and for a very reasonable price, um, like something in the neighborhood of like $1,200, uh, does a two or two and a half day curriculum. And, and that's also coming up, I, I've noticed. So it's not like there's this huge array of you know, opportunities, but there, there, there is an array in terms of price points, uh, formats, and uh, who's offering it. And by the way, if folks on, uh, listening don't know about Esther Derby, she wrote the book, um, Agile Retrospectives um, for Teams. I've met her in person. She does absolutely. I mean, the, the folks who come out of her uh, seminars just can't stop raving about her. So clearly, um, that would be high quality content in in my personal view. So boot camps uh, are they related at all to coaching circles, or do they do coaching circles kind of follow? through uh, follow up on the camps. not that I could tell from the web pages that I was reading I did know that um, so David Chilcott I believe uh, was part of one of these programs I, I, I'm guessing it was Lissa Adkins program but it could have been Esther Derby's and um, as we know uh, he, he runs a, a, an agile coaching circle but as far as I can tell they're Randomly related, if any. I'm just thinking that yeah. you know, if you have a, a bunch of people who went through the boot camp together, why not just yeah. make, and make your own circle yeah. ad hoc or something? What about our relationship to the Scrum Coaching Retreat? Is this, are there right. are there a relationship to that? That's true, and you might have noted, like I guess it was about two or three weeks ago, um, at the Arizona uh, Chandler Arizona Agile Coaching Retreat, uh, Alan Daly did release uh, as requested the entire list of uh, contacts that all those folks, you know, I think had the intention of reuniting at some point. So you say here coaching retreats and boot camps, how are they related? How are they Hmm. the same or different? That's a good question. In my mind, they're related because I would say that they're roughly equivalent in terms of building coaching expertise in the attendees. However, now that you ask the question, it could be that at different stages, I could see the boot camps being more valuable the earlier you are in developing your agile coaching expertise and the coaching retreats being more valuable later on. So what is the key difference then between a boot camp and a retreat? Why don't we yeah, talk about sure. that? So I think that the boot camps actually have one-to-many styled curriculum. There's literally like, you know, probably a manual or a set of exercises that the expert coach of coaches uh, presents and and runs people through their paces. Whereas coaching retreats, I would say for all intents and purposes are an open space that's attended by coaches. Okay. Got it. Yeah. I know John, you and I went to one last year on the scrum coaching retreat. I mean, and that was really excellent. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of great things came out of that, that experience. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. So I'd like to invite you to our website. That's agilecoffee.com slash episode nine. That's episode and the number nine. 
And uh, you can find links to any of the books or websites that we've mentioned on here, as well as our own contact information. I'd like to thank once again John, Brett, and Dr. Dave for joining me here today. And uh, stay tuned for episode 10, which is a continuation of the cards that we discussed at the beginning of today's show. Peace out and be agile. Coffee. 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 Coffee.